0: Hello everybody and welcome back to You the Devil in TND. I'm Lindsay and I use she her pronouns.
1: I'm Ryan and I use he him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's my that's my pronouns. He, him, cough, cough, cough.
0: <laughs> um we are two siblings who are exploring the satanic panic, and um, we're nearing the end of this first arc, so we decided, hey. How did the eighties Become the '80s.
1: Well, there's a lot of things that went into that. Lindsay, can you start us off?
0: Um. Okay. Well, I feel like. Okay, so the '80s is an era of of extreme contrast and like really, really extreme contrast. It was a time of extreme wealth and extreme poverty, laissez-faire capitalism, and conservative politics crushing unions, planned economies, and the welfare state. You have countercultures facing off against right-wing authority. There was massive leaps in information technology with the growth of available, uh, with the growth and availability of uh, personal computers, fax machines, VHS cassettes, VHS and gaming consoles. There was the AIDS crisis, the Iran-Iraq War, the Iran-Contra, the war on drugs, glass knots, and Perestroika, and of course our beloved Satanic Panic. This all feeds into each other.
1: <laughs> it's all it. The 80s is the melting pot of time.
0: Yeah. Like, you know how in the 90s like after the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union was over, Francis Fukuyama did that really badly named book called The End of History. Basically the ed- the 80s was the end of history. It- it's quasi apocalyptic. Because this is the apotheosis of capitalism, and we now live in what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism. Yeah, I, I've been listening to Mark Fisher's <laughs> books recently.
1: <laughs> and it's really fat, It's a fat, such a fascinating time because both of us are not from the 80s. We were born well after no. that. No. Uh,
0: we were not a twinkle in either pair. Well, not in dad's eyes. Mom was already picking out her names.
1: No, yeah. She had that plan from the start. But. <laughs> The, uh, the world, you know, it's, it's like the world was going to, into the final episode of a TV show, but this isn't MASH. Yeah. This isn't going to be the satisfying yeah. conclusion that you thought you were going to get, in which would have been a massive nuclear winter. Instead, it yeah. just kind of, yeah.
0: F- fizzled out. <laughs>
1: The wall came down and it stopped being nearly as exciting as it could have been, so we had a decade to kind of just breathe for a little bit. Well. In the, breathe
0: in, in the Anglosphere.
1: In the Anglosphere. In Everything the capital, else. Oh shit! Oh fuck! It oh. was brewing! Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, <laughs> Dad was away for most of our early years.
1: The rest of the world was ready was ready for that nuclear winter to come, but in a different way.
0: I mean, like, even in the States, with the whole, like, idea that, like, the 90s was a quiet, peaceful period, like, you still had, like, Waco in Oklahoma City and um, Columbine, like, presaging everything. And the satanic panic continued into the 90s. One of these days, we're going to have a full episode, a full series, really, about uh the west methods
1: three mm-hmm.
0: because that was kind of like the capstone of classic satanic panic Classic. <sighs> so yeah like in the early 80s like a lot of the bands and artists that we had covered previous previous two episodes were targeted because they were fitting into this established world order that is no longer around and we're st- people are still not realizing that, like, this neoliberal consensus is not working and is breaking down. Though I wonder if, like, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was kind of like a a wake-up call for a lot of the people. I don't know. Sure, hope so. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I have a whole bunch of stuff here that we're Probably. Yeah. Where are my notes? Am I? So, yeah. Last week's up ep- the last two episodes were about the bands and artists who got targeted by the established order that came into power in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. And this includes, like, you gotta remember, Tipper Gore and Al Gore, they're Democrats. But they were. They still embody this new neoliberalism, this emerging neoliberalism which is like basically capitalism but like we're also going to keep a very threadbare welfare state so the big question is how did this happen and to explain the 80s you kind of have to go back to the 70s so yeah like basically the 80s was kind of like the triumph of a dark alliance between business, the religious right, and capitalist politicians, which came uh, with them came the dismantling of the welfare systems that were started after World War One, and lowering taxes with wealth. In a way, this new era dangerously resembles the Gilded Age. And as I said, we gotta go back to the 70s to explain this. So, the 1970s were a very difficult time for everybody. <laughs> there were It was also another era of contradictions. There were massive gains made by political liberation movements. It marked the end of many old empires. There were wars and coups. There there was one crisis after another. um, Taking advantage of the continued crises, the right wing in many western countries made moves to gain power. Because the one thing people like is stability. And what does the right like to offer? Stability. So, in the 70s, like, what was the big thing? It was Vietnam, counterculture, um, superpowers, kind of... There was detente. Like, this whole kind of warming up of communist-capitalist relations, kind of? Mostly in the name of business. Yeah. And also, like, I think having enough close calls... On the nuclear crises front, was enough for people to be like, okay, maybe we should actually start talking to each other a bit more often because we, we now know what the consequences of our actions are going to be, which is everybody dies.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, and also, it probably helped a little bit that America was humbled after leaving Vietnam and seeing h- an entire generation get wiped yeah. out, essentially, and be so beat well, down. Well, you would and destroyed. think that
0: yeah well, you would think that a lot of people were humbled, but I kinda am like the thing with empires when they get their nose bloodied or if they f- they when they get their nose bloody, they feel like the empire's falling apart. Yes, I'm calling America an empire. it is deal with it, yeah, it is, and I think a lot of people at least in our online spheres fully acknowledge that America is an empire, so Vietnam was basically America's first very humiliating defeat. Like, this is a situation on paper where America should have won. And it didn't. I don't know. I don't know if there was any good way to have won Vietnam. I, me and dad think that, like, after World War II, Vietnam should have just not gone back to the French to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe this all could have been avoided. What What's your opinion on Vietnam?
1: America was headhunting. They were looking for that post-war economy boom that they got from the Second World War, and they were they were looking yeah. to really push that kind of thing. So as soon as they had an opportunity to send the troops up to the front and hopefully General Motors and Ford and all the big American car companies and all the weapons manufacturers went to fucking overdrive, that Mm -hmm. it would spike something, and in the end, it dragged out, because who would have thought that uh, fighting with some of the most advanced equipment in the jungle would have some problems?
0: Or, like, going in without much of an idea of what is this going to look like, like, what is the game plan
1: that and also you were at this point 20 years removed from the second world war and having some having excellent really highly trained soldiers and they definitely were sending a lot of people in with inadequate training
0: yeah and just like again going to the more ephemeral stuff like what why are we here like at least with something like fighting fascism like there's something tangible to it a lot more the the bad guys are a lot more clear
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the
0: thing with communism is like it's (sighs) authoritarian communism is bad like there's a lot of it's not a perfect system but like (sighs) it's it's not the outright rabid evil that fascism is?
1: Yeah. So like <laughs> like you know how whenever you watch a movie that's set in Soviet Russia between like 1990 and 19 like 50 it's very gray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Soviet communism just as, like, a hole right there because it is very ambiguous.
0: It, you could live a life... It, it's boring.
1: It As long as you did not up, upset the state, say anything wrong, do anything wrong, you were pretty much in the clear. If you lived out in the fucking taiga... Uh, and just, like, never had any human contact, you probably didn't even know what the hell was going on or who the ruling party was, you might still think the Tsar was in power.
0: I mean, there were a couple uh, old believers who did do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the tangibility of something like communism as the next great evil was just... American fear needing the villain, and you're the obvious villain because you're our next biggest competition for world domination.
0: And, like, this has been going on for, like, the ruling class in America has had a long-standing fear of the working people rising up to throw them out of power. Because they've seen it! They've seen it
1: happen before!
0: Yeah! Yeah! They did it, um, well, I think a lot of it is rooted in one of America's original sins, which is slavery. Mm -hmm. It's the fear of your slaves deciding, you know what, fuck the masters. We know where everything is.
1: Their greatest fear was Nat Turner.
0: Yeah. And they see every every worker as a future Nat Turner. So where socialism and anarchism and communism com- comes in is like these are philosophies of the working class which is like we don't have to live like this we can seize the means of production and create our own societies without the bosses and the those massive corporations like um, Boeing and like the major arms arms companies they are afraid of that. And that's why they wanted to crush communism. They could actually work fine with fascism. They're right. okay with They're cool because with that. Because they get a payday. Yeah. They get paid. Because fascism is about perpetual war. It's a death cult. <laughs> there. I said it.
1: <laughs> like, I mean, you're very true. It's funny. When I streamed a few, like, last year, uh, Bros in Arms... Uh, my good friend, uh, my good friend Ashi mentioned that exact phrase when she described, uh, not communism, fascism. It's like, fascism is a death cult. And then we saw a, saw a fucking, uh, NPC. I shot it so hard, it punched its fucking arm through a gravestone, a headstone, and it looked like it was sea Heilig.
0: Like, I remember that. Oh my god! (laughs) Even in
1: death, (laughs) even even in death, it's a fucking death call.
0: Yeah. So like, okay, 1960s. You had a few real. 1950s and 60s. You had a couple real close calls. What with um, back in the early 50s, he had old Dougie MacArthur wanting to basically. Turn North China, Northern China, into a field of glass with nukes. <laughs> we'll be talking about him in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the Cuban Missile Crisis, where it's like, if it weren't for a couple guys actually like being like, "Hey, how about we don't deploy nukes?"
1: <laughs> hey guys, I have Let's a really cool brakes. idea. Let's not do that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it just so happens everybody was like, thank fucking God. Ooh. <laughs> and yeah, a couple, like, broken arrow incidents that we know about in the US. So who knows what sort of broken arrow incidents happen over in the Soviet Union? Because, dear God, their military culture is. So, oh, oh dear Lord. <laughs> Mmm. Hmm. Mm. suicide by plutonium.
1: Mmm. <laughs> Fuck, that's oh That's rough. <laughs> Fuck, just eat the cyanide pill. Like why are you doing that?
0: <laughs> just drink yourself to death, Ivan. Just do that. Please. Um anyway, so Dayton. Detente. detente was partially a reaction against the policies of the previous 25 years, which had brought about which had brought the world close to nuclear war on several occasions, and because the U.S. was in a weakened position following the failure of of the Vietnam War. As part of detente, the U.S. also restored ties with the People's Republic of China, partially as a counterweight against Soviet expansionism, even though the Soviets weren't really expanding at that point. They had kind of reached their apex in the 1970s. And then Afghanistan happened.
1: (laughs) Hey. As I, as many scholars have pointed out, what is the worst thing you can do with your empire?
0: <laughs> and in Afghanistan.
1: It's the graveyard of empires. Yeah. And recently proven once again!
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you get to that 150 year point and you gotta go into Afghanistan.
1: Oh, you guys wasted 20 years here. 20 years. Only for the Taliban to once again take over. That's tough. That's so tough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, The U.S.-Soviet geopolitical rivalry nonetheless continued throughout the decade. And I'm talking about the 1970s here. Although, in a more indirect fact... uh, way as the two superpowers jockeyed relentlessly for control of smaller countries american and soviet intelligence agencies gave funding training and material support to insurgent groups governments and armies across the globe each seeking to gain a geopolitical advantage and install friendly governments Coup, civil wars and terrorism went across asia africa and latin america and also in europe where a spate of soviet-backed marxist terrorist groups were active throughout the decade we might talk about the years of lead in Italy. I think that, that might that's be something it. to look into. That might
1: be something to look into right there.
0: Yeah. Um, over half of the world's population in the 1970s lived <coughs> lived under a repressive dictatorship. In 1979, a new wrinkle appeared in the form of Islamic fundamentalism. As the Shia theocracy of Ayatollah Khomeini overthrew the Shah of Iran and declared itself hostile to both Western democracies and godless communism, and trust me, the Shah wasn't better. The Shah was the trump of the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, deeply, people were deeply influenced by the rapid pace of societal change and the aspirations for a more egalitarian society and cultures that were long colonized and have even a longer history of hierarchical social structure structures. It was the Green Revolution of the late 1960s that led over into the 70s that brought about self-sufficiency in food and many developing economies. At the same time, an increasing number of people began to seek urban urban prosperity over agrarian life. The This consequently saw the duality of transition of diverse diverse interaction across societal communities amid increasing information blockades across social classes like we talked i remember you talked to dad once um on one of your older podcasts and he said that in the 70s there was a massive like depopulation of rural areas
1: yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah like i know in canada that by the 70s, there was a massive flip in rural urban populations. Like, by the 50s, it was more like 50-50 between rural and urban. And by the 1970s, it was like 80-20. So, I think there was also a drought that hit North America at that time, and there was also something called the Farm Crisis, which uh, this is something that... Look, listeners, I have been really, really busy. Okay, the Farm Crisis was in the 80s. Described a time of agricultural recession, of low crop prices, and low farm incomes. And Part of that, yeah, there was a drought at the time and just like shit upon shit upon shit. Anyway, other com- common global ethos of the 1970s world included increasing flexibility and in varied gender roles for women in industrialized societies. More women would enter the workforce, and there was a expansion of women taking on powerful political roles. This is when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister of the UK. There was a, actually a number of women who became prime ministers and presidents at this point. Um, however, the gender role of men remained—that is, the breadwinner. The period also saw the socioeconomic effect of an ever-increasing number of women entering the non-agrarian economic workforce. Because farm wives, as it turns out, weren't considered laborers until basically divorce became until the no-fault divorce. There was an entire thing that happened here in Canada where a farm wife got divorced from her husband and she wanted compensation for her work because she basically the thing a lot of farm wives do is they take care of the business end of farming they're the ones who take care of accounting and um, selling the products and that was just considered part of her wifely duties yeah that was a case that got taken up to the supreme court in Canada and I think she wound up eventually getting compensation from her husband for all of the labor that she did no but it was a long process it also led to canada getting no false divorce that was a big thing in the 70s so speaking of uh women's changing roles second wave feminism let's talk about that so that began again in the 1970s in the 1960s and carried over into the 70s and looked and took a prominent role within society The 50th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which legalized female suffrage in 1970, was commemorated by the Women's Strike for Equality and other protests. In 1971, over in the UK, a woman named Erin Pezzi established the world's first domestic violence shelter in Chiswick, London, and she and her colleagues opened further facilities throughout, throughout the next few years. This work inspired similar networks of safe houses for women, for female victims of abuse in other countries, with the first shelter in continental Europe opening in Amsterdam in 1974. In addition, the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade, which constitutionalized the right to abortion,
1: <sighs>
0: uh, brought the women's right movement to the national political spotlight. Most efforts of this movement aimed, especially aimed at societal equality and repeals to the remaining oppressive sexist sexist laws, were successful. Doors of opportunity were more numerous and much more open than before, as women gained unheard of acts, unheard of success in business, politics, education, and science, of the law, and even at home. Although most aims of the movement were successful there were some significant failures most notably the failure of the equal rights amendment to the US constitution with only three more states needing to ratify it the efforts to ratify the ERA and the unratified states continues to this day and 22 states have adopted state ERAs also the wage wage gap failed to close but it did become smaller so like the big thing from this and how like the women's second way feminism fed into the into the satanic panic is so okay, this is Lindsay's grand theory about how or like grand thing about how people don't understand that working women have always worked. And that the whole sorry, I need to blow my nose. So working women have always worked. But in the post-war years, there was probably this maybe 15-year period where a working class man who had a union job could earn enough money without having a college degree to support himself, his wife, and a couple of kids. And they could have like a nice little house and a car. And maybe do some extra fun things, too. That didn't last long because the unions ended up being corrupted and broken starting in the mid-60s. Well, the corruption had been going on for a while. The breaking of the unions probably started more in the late 60s into the 70s. Like, there was borderline wars in some areas between unions and union breakers. Um. (coughs) So it meant that a lot of women like regardless of what they wanted had to go back back into the workforce and a lot of women did like a lot of women didn't want to be stuck at home basically popping pills like their betty draper
1: mm-hmm.
0: but there's but like those i'm talk those women i'm talking about white suburban women i'm not talking like the women who always worked are like women of color like, they often still had to work as, like, maid, maids or as factory workers. There were women, again, working on farms. There were farm wives and daughters. Where it's like, no, this is just part of daily life. Like, if you come from a working class background, your grandma probably had to work. No matter what. Um, but anyway, the big like, visible push was for women to get into office jobs. Into more higher power corporate jobs. But this created... First off, the way that suburbs work, it kind of atomizes communities. Like, prior to, like, the explosion of suburbs, most families, like, they might not be physically close, or, like, what is defined as physically close varies from place to place. Like, Ryan and I's families are from rural areas, so like, an hour is considered close. Yeah. Um. (laughs) But, like, you still like, in a geographical area, you pretty much had your entire family. Um, sometimes both sides. You at least had one side of- You at least had one spouse's family in an area that you could rely upon to like take care of the kids if like both of you couldn't do that at the same time like a common thing that happened in the 1800s here in canada to the point that there had to be a law passed against it was that like so maternal mortality was really high mom gets birth to a bunch of kids she dies of childbed fever or tuberculosis or something so that leaves a farm dad with a bunch of little kids and he's got to take care of the farm somebody's got to take care of the little kids so mom's sister comes to take care of the kids and one thing leads to another and suddenly mom's sister is now stepmom. Which happened in our family. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. The Canadian government had to pass a law saying you can't do this. It's kind of incesty.
1: Uh, <clears throat> we, we don't like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's a weird example, but, like, it, it's, like, in cities, like, you, mom and dad could live across the street from aunt and uncle. Like, that, that sort of situation. With the suburbs, you're atomized. It's, like, discrete families. And, yeah, you can make connections with your neighbors, but, like, you have to go out of your way to make those connections.
1: Yeah, the sense of community was lost when families... Descended upon the suburbs, and there that like you weren't really much of a neighborhood unless you're you had kids who you know kids naturally hang out with each other, uh, in these small mm-hmm. tight knit groups, and thus the families in those neighborhoods would at least start talking to each other in in some sort of yeah. dialogue, but before. Like you would have households, and your whole family would essentially live there. Mom, dad, your kid, the kids, your probably your uncle who's a bachelor just trying to make some money and uh, go to college You're at some point. widowed
0: on from the other side, yeah. Like
1: grandma, grandma, grandpa. grandpa,
0: and like back before industrialization, it wasn't just like your family. Like mom and dad probably had apprentices too if they had a trade. Mm -hmm. So you would also have these outsiders come in.
1: They may as well be family as well. Yeah. Uncle Johnny isn't really your uncle, but he may as well be your uncle.
0: Yeah. Like, the definition of, like, the nuclear family as being, like, the basis for all society, it's, like, no, that's actually a pretty modern invention. Most families, like, if you go to a Roman family, like, we're talking about, like, yeah, you have the nuclear family, but it's part of a much larger clan structure.
1: hmm Like, I think a lot of it kind of almost stems from uh, how... What, what your background almost is, because, like, talking to people who are, you know, are from different cultures, even, like, different <laughs> subsets of white people. Like... Yeah. Like, my buddy Silvio... Like his, his Ita- Ita- Italian family sorry. <laughs> his Italian family is a very large, very well well-knit community. uh and I take that almost in comparison to our family, where you know we we have more of a europe uh more of a uh, I don't know northern European English yeah. Scottish backgrounds. <laughs> Where we scattered.
0: Yeah, we scattered. But we're also a big family. It's a big family, but
1: it's all over the place. I think what helps with
0: our family... Yeah, like, I think what helps with our family is that both sides come from the uh, Herford community. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, like, everybody knows each other. Like, even if you're not related, like... Oh, yeah, we all went to 4-H together.
1: Yeah, and those rural communities after everyone left, had to become more tight-knit.
0: Yeah. And, like, there's also the side of the family that's Mennonite, and, like, religious minority within religious minorities, linguistic minorities within linguistic mo- minorities. Like, you're kind of your own bubble. It also doesn't help that the Mennonites are pretty bad at, like, having schisms all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a reason why the fam our branch of the family isn't Mennonite anymore. Yeah. Um, anyway, like, this all goes into the whole, women had to enter the workforce, you have the atomization of families in the suburbs. So that meant the rise of daycare. Now, there's always been some sort of daycare situation going on. Like, there were creches back in the day, there were um baby minders during world war ii like all sorts of stuff like there's always been some sort of child care available to working women it's just this was the first time where it was kind of needed on a scale on a larger scale Mm -hmm. for women entering the corporate world which had been for a long time barred to women Uh, so basically this leads to a lot of guilt being thrust upon women because you're not at home. You're not taking care of the kids. You're not making sure that they're being fed. You're neglecting them. And it's particularly targeted towards women. Dads were expected to be absentee. <laughs> Dads were expected to be Don Draper. You go to work. yeah. You, you have your three martini lunch. You come back home and you have your three martini dinner.
1: And also with the side of cocaine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, dad would have the sort of cocaine while mom is on, like, so much, like, Valium.
1: <sighs> Poor kid can't get his homework done because his parents are just fucking junkies.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, kids, ask, like, grandma and grandpa uh, what their pills were back in the day. So, yeah, just, like, this... <sighs> this whole thrusting of guilt upon women, but also like weirdly, the '60s, '70s, and '80s didn't really care about teenagers because of the amounts of like runaways that were happening, or like people treating kids going missing as just oh they they just ran away they'll be back.
1: Yeah, and as it turns out now they're a groupie traveling across the country following The Grateful Dead,
0: if they're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, there's this deep-seated hatred towards teenagers, like, (laughs) this whole thing recently about, like, people being so concerned about the innocence of children and all that, it's like, uh, it's another thing we're gonna get into, we're gonna get into deeper in, in a later episode, but it has nothing to do with, like, the innocence of children themselves, it's all about the potential for the children to become not what the parents want. Because parents are inherently selfish. So, yeah, you have all of this guilt about parents neglecting their children, particularly mothers neglecting their children while they're off, you know, having careers, being selfish about it, even though, like, yeah, my husband's job doesn't pull in the same amount of money that it used to because ever since, like, the union went bust. But let's hop over to another boogeyman of the 70s and 80s. Crime and Serial Killers. Hmm. This is where Ryan drops in the talking head sting.
1: It's morning again in America.
0: Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes. More than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> it's the fucking worst. <laughs> Ryan's space journey is just like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you're good to go, right?
1: It's morning again, in America.
0: <laughs> Alright, so, anyway, crime and serial killers. Uh, crime, rate, crime rates in the U.S. had been at a low from the 1940s until the mid-1960s, but began to escalate after 1965 due to a complex mixture of social, economic, and demographic factors. The reasons include sabotaging social safety nets, deindustrialization, the corruption and breaking of unions, stagnant wages, inflation and lead. Um, by the 1970s, crime and crime had blidden urban areas. Crime and blend in ur- urban areas were at a, ser- were a serious cause for concern, New York City being particularly affected. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled capital punishment unconstitutional and then reversed the ruling only four years later. The decade became the era of the serial killer, which contributed to the, ser- to the Satanic Panic. So 1970s New York, like, den of scum and villainy. It was pretty bad, but a lot of that was, like, structural issues, really, and racism. Um, and also bad urban planning. Uh, Anyway, serial killers. So, there was, throughout the 1960s and 70s and into the 80s, there was guys like Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas, who were active from 1960 to 1983, who confessed to more crimes than they could have possibly committed and created an elaborate conspiracy uh, for how they got away for so long. There was Edmund Kemper, the co-ed serial killer who was active from 64 to 73. Dean Corll, who from 1970 to 73 murdered at least 28 young people in Houston, Texas with the help of two young accomplices. Ted Bundy was running around the Rockies from 1971 to 78. At the same time, there was also Ronnie Akala, the dating game killer who, yeah, he appeared on the dating game and the woman who picked him out but, um, back stage. She took one look at him and it's like, "Oh no. No, 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 no." Yeah. She just got immediate bad vibes from him. Um up in Alaska there was the Butcher Baker, Robert Hansen, who'd hunt his victims in the woods. Randy Kraft, the Scorecard Killer, who was active from 1971 to 80 to 83. There was John Wayne Gacy from 67 to 78. There was the Zebra Murders in seventy three and seventy four, and of course David Berkowitz, aka the Center Sam, who was active from seventy six in seventy six and seventy seven. We'll probably talk about him in particular because he got a lot of satanic shit thrown at him, but also like David Berkowitz is like a pathological liar.
1: Oh, fun. That's, that's a yeah. beautiful com- co- combination if, you, if you're if you looking to build a serial killer. If you want to build the yeah. perfect serial killer, you need a guy who's fucked up, who's drank a lot of lead, who is a pathological liar, and also... Smell the milk. <laughs> and most of all, has a thirst, the drive. He's got that dog in him to fucking kill a bunch of motherfuckers.
0: People are like, oh, he's hunting for brunettes with long hair. And it's like, that was the popular hairstyle at the time.
1: Who wasn't was a brunette?
0: everywhere. Like, and like, oh, there's a pattern to all of his killings. No, he, the dumbass had a car in New York. <laughs> the, the reason why he killed in the locations he did was because that was like the first places that he could find parking. <laughs> i I have a lot to say about these killer about the serial killers, and we'll like actually talk about them more fully in a later series. The general idea though like the reason probably the biggest reason why the sixties seventies and eighties had so many serial killers was probably because forensic science was getting to forensic science and psych- and forensic psychology was starting to be able to realize that there was like a special category of killers and now the reason why a lot of these guys got away for so long is because of who they were targeting a lot of them were targeting people nobody gave a shit about like one of Canada's most infamous serial killers who probably got a start back in the 80s was Robert Picton over in Vancouver Mm -hmm. he he went after uh first nation sex workers a lot of whom were addicted to heroin and like there's no special conspiracy some people like to lump him in with some like weird satanic panic shit weird occult shit and it's like no the reason why he got away for so long despite being an actual dumbass was because nobody gives a shit about first nations women there's a reason why we have the missing and murdered indigenous women's movement here in canada it's like fuck a couple weeks ago there was like what city of winnipeg came out with like there's two serial killers
1: yeah i believe so
0: yeah and they're hunting first nations women and like the police in vancouver when uh robert picton finally got fucking picked up, like, fully admitted that they did not give a shit about those women. Like, the judge decided that the, that he was only going to be tried for, like, 40, 40 cases despite, like, there being proof that there was more women um, that he buried on his property. Or, like, that he disposed of on his property. Like, I, I cannot stress how much the reason why these fuckers get away with shit is because, like, we're talking about sex workers. With Jeffrey Dahmer, It was mostly uh, gay men, gay boys, uh, who weren't white. And who were coming from working class backgrounds. Like, (laughs) this whole uh, flames! Flames on the side of my face, basically. (laughs) Like, yeah, Uh, going into the whole like, oh, women aren't taking care of their children, but we don't the police don't give a fuck if your kid if you report your kid kid missing for more than twenty four hours because we're fucking lazy. Like Yeah. <sighs> Sorry.
1: Nope, that's fine. Also, by the way, honestly Picton's got off pretty lucky. Like he only got six counts of second degree murder. And also in a couple years, he's up for parole.
0: I fucking love this country.
1: This country is just great, great.
0: <sighs> he fucking fed the corpses to his pigs.
1: Yeah, he probably killed He he confessed to 49. Probably could yeah. been more.
0: Mhm. Like the reason why police never went onto his farm is because like he was out in Quil- 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 Long and there was some jurisdiction friction between the Vancouver PD and the RCMP. And also, like, he palled around with the hell's angels. So, like, yeah. Fuck him. May he rest in piss.
1: <sighs>
0: so let's talk about other different types of fuckers. the The people who create this this entire system, the neoconservatives. So, not very quietly or subtly, but always with the mask of respectability, the neoconservative movement was poised for a takeover in the 1970s. and emerged among uh, American liberal hawks of the 1960s who became disenchanted with what they pers- pers- perceived to be the Democratic Party's increasingly pacifistic foreign policy along with the growing new left and counterculture. They were disdainful of communism and political radicalism. They were best described as stone-cold capitalists with utilitarian ethics and a rather technocratic view of liberal democracy. They became ascended in the 1980s, becoming the conservative establishment with the help of the paleoconservatives. So these conservatives stressed American nationalism, Christian ethics, regionalism and traditionalist co- conservatism. Paleo conservatives concerns overlap with those of the old right and the that opposed the New Deal in the 1930s and the 1940s as well <coughs> as with the paleo libertarians and the initial right wing and initially right wing populism according to the international relations scholar Michael Foley quote Paleoconservatives press for restrictions on immigration, a rollback of multicultural programs, and large-scale demographic changes, the decentralization of federal policy, the restoration of controls upon free trade, a greater emphasis upon economic nationalism, and non-interventionism in the conduct of American foreign policy. It's been argued by scholars like George Hawley that paleoconservatives have become a spent force, I would argue that they've morphed into Christian nationalism. Uh, as many root their doctrines in Confederate Christianity, anti-modernism, and a theocratic strain that has its origins in one of America's original sins. Salvation and identity is through the blood of the father and the mother. This is an idea come up cooked up by one Con Mather, a Puritan leader back in the 1690s. So when I say this is an original sin, I mean it's an original sin. So these two forces in the 1970s came together and got Reagan into power. Now, over in Britain the situation was a bit different. Uh there had been a long strain of uh of labor governments that um yeah, the 1970s was fucking rough on Britain. <laughs>
1: That eh, was not a good time. You you wonder why a lot, like, how something like Pink Floyd's The Wall could have been made. Hmm.
0: Well, a lot of war trauma. The Empire fucking collapsed. Um, nobody goes and sees a therapist. Also, they realized that the coal industry was dying and there wasn't any good substitution for it. Also, there was a big defaults and... Just like a lot of bad shit happened kind of all at once. Yeah, Britain had decolonization wasn't going well. Um, so, by the end of the decade, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives came to power. And their whole thing was to revitalize the economy by breaking the labor unions and basically selling <coughs> selling out British, British industry to other places, mostly to the Americans. And uh, then they got into the Falklands War, which is kind of like the... (laughs) The reason why the Falkland Wars happened was because of, like, colonial disputes with fucking Argentina and it it was kind of like it was considered like this last glorious colonial war. Which, really, guys?
1: Gotta still prove that we're the top dog, right?
0: Yeah. This is what happens when your empire has fucking crumbled. This is why the U.S. had gotten into Afghanistan later on. You gotta just prove to everybody that we're still
1: top God. I- I'm still, like, I-, 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 I can fight. I can still fight. Don't fuck with me. I'll fuck with you. And this is after years of satellite proxy wars that meant nothing but establish a foothold.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's like, America, you fucking won. Like, everybody drinks Coca-Cola, even though it's shit. So, yeah. The the thing, too, with, like, this combination of the neo- and paleo-conservatives that formed the Reagan government is that it... Like, these are the guys who killed the, uh, the Equal Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment. Um... These were the people who... Um kind of in the background their the paleoconservatives in particular their rise to power came from like this alliance between uh traditional catholics who were very upset about vatican ii and we will do a series about vatican ii because i think it's a big enough topic to warrant its own thing um basically the vatican church uh, the Catholic Church decided, uh, this is, we should probably reform a few things. <coughs> There's some really old shit here that we need to deal with. Also, yeah. like, maybe not make the Bible so mysterious but start translating it. The Protestants kind of had a good idea with that. Oh, uh,
1: that's probably a good idea. We should probably start spelling stuff with this yeah. stuff out.
0: Yeah. and And then you have the this group of protestant fundamentalists who had also like gone in bed with big business because they were somehow like everybody is afraid of communism again this goes back to the fear of communism and the fear of nat turner (laughs) because like these sorts of christians the ones who buddied up with big business going back to the 1930s they were opposed to this entire idea of um what's called the social gospel which is basically like actually reading the new testament and being like oh jesus was kind of in favor of you know love thy neighbor and you know do unto others um it was a thing that was really popular among among certain protestant denominations like um uh Presbyterian, certain branches of presbyterianism it was really popular with methodists up here in canada uh it's how the united church of canada which is the largest protestant denomination in canada came about um <laughs> uh, I, I i'm just gonna note right here uh i have a minor in religious studies so i want to use that
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. i need
0: to exercise my degree somehow um, so anyway, the social gospel was a social movement within Protestantism that apl- that aims to apply Christian ethics to social problems, especially issues of social justice, such as economic inequality, poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tensions, slums, unclean environments, uh, child labor, lack of unionization, poor schools, the dangers of war. It was most prominent in the early 20th century in the U.S. and Canada, and theologically, the social gospelers sought to put into practice the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were typically post-millennialists, so they believed that the second coming would not happen until humankind had rid itself of social evils by human effort. The Protestants that make up a lot of the paleo-conservatives were kind of, like, there was a mix of those who were post-millennial, who believed that the Second Coming wouldn't happen until, like, they had established a Christian order, that basically a Christian theocracy. But a lot of them were pre-millennial, which means there has to be a time of tribulations, and then yada, 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 basically everything from... Left behind. Mm. Um, we'll get to those books in the future too. <laughs> um, so the social gospel was more popular among clergy than, or at least it, some think it was more popular amongst clergy than lady. But it helped fuel a lot of progressive moments. Um that led to like um basically the reason why canada has uh, universal health care is because of the social gospel uh Saskatchewan premier back in the 50s and 60s tommy douglas who's also the grandfather of Kiefer Sutherland, um he had started his career as a baptist minister and he fully bought into the social gospel now he also bought into Stuff which makes him kind of. Ugh. Uh, but he also believed in the need for a universal healthcare system, and he fought really fucking hard to get that, not just in Saskatchewan, but across Canada. It's not a perfect system, it needs a, a lot of fucking reform. And fucking Christ, NDP, it is okay to reform our healthcare system. It's fine. We need to expand it.
1: Please. <laughs>
0: I know that you're scared about wrecking the thing that Tommy Douglas created, but I think he would have appreciated it if you had improved it. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we have is a compromise. Um, But yeah, like a lot of these social gospel people were really involved in stuff like the New Deal. During the 1930s, social gospel themes could, have, could be seen in the works of Harry Hopkins, Willa, Alexander and Mary McLeod Bethune who added a new concern with African Americans after 1940 the movement lessened but it was invigorated in the 1950s by black leaders like Martin Luther King Jr in the civil rights movement uh there what the social gospel was really involved in the labor movement in the in both the US and Canada like there is a direct line like basically the party that existed before the new democratic party who is canada's main left-wing party the the levels are Um, so there was this party called the cooperative commonwealth federation uh which later reformulated into the NDP, and was founded on social gospel principles in the 1930s by j by j s woodsworth a methodist minister out of uh winnipeg and alberta mp william irvine woodsworth were wrote extensively about the social gospel for, ex, from experiences gained while working with, immi- with immigrant slum dwellers in Winnipeg from 1904 to 1913. His writings called for the kingdom of God here and now. The political party took power in, the pro- in Saskatchewan in 1944, uh, and this group was led by Tommy Douglas, who, as I said, was a Baptist minister who introduced universal health care, family allowances, and old age pensions. The political party has since largely lost its religious basis and became a more secular social democratic party, but like these guys instituted a lot of the social welfare system that we take for granted today that is slowly being chipped away at by the liberals and the conservatives and fuck you Scott Moe. Yeah, I got my $500 check. It's going to my savings. Still fuck you, Scotty Moe. I don't want my fucking taxes going to Christian school. To private Christian schools.
1: Motherfucker.
0: God, I fucking hate that guy. How has it... Anyway, yeah. So, the other big point of influence was, um, with the social gospel in Canada, was uh, the People's Church in Brandon, which was formed in 1919. Um, started by Methodist ministry. A.E. Smith, the People's Church, attempted to provide an alternative to, to the traditional church with Smith's view, which Smith viewed as unconcerned with social issues. In his autobiography My Life of my life, Smith described his last sermon before starting the People's Church, saying, The Church was afraid it might give offense to the rich and powerful. The People's Church was successful for a time, with the People's Church the People's Churches founded in Vancouver, Victoria, Edmonton, and Calgary. A Winnipeg Methodist minister and social gospeler, um, William Evans, started work started another workers' church, the Labor Church, in 1918. Both Smiths and Evans tried to take leaves of absence from their Methodist ministries, which were initially granted upon decisions to bring all such special cases before the Methodist uh, stationing committee. However, the decision rescinded and like these churches became like in 1919 kind of like planning centers for the winnipeg general strike in 1935 like the united church of canada was actually kind of an epicenter for the people who would like form the onto ottawa trek and the regina riot and eventually like the regina manifesto was written by a bunch of fucking minister church ministers which if you've read the Regina Manifesto, it is a very radical document that outlined the CCF's original, like, party platform um, before, like, they adopted a more tame one in the 50s to, because of the communist Red Scare. But yeah, like, the paleoconservatives fucking hated the social gospel because it was teaching, it was saying to the workers, again, like, you don't have to live like this. We can form a kingdom of heaven. Right here, right now, that is fair and right and just. And was pointing out that, you know, a rich man can't get through the gates of heaven easier than a camel through the eye of a needle. And the paleoconservatives fucking hated that. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. So, that, that goes on to the next topic. So, in the U.S., The 1980s was when the New Deal was finally fucking killed. Um, So, beginning in the late 60s, labor unions began to lose their members and their influence. With the economy becoming more service-oriented, the proportion of manufacturing jobs declined. Companies began relocating such jobs to sunbelt states free of union influences, and many Americans followed. As a result, union membership steadily declined. This combined with generally rising income incomes reduced their incentive to vote Democrat. Labor unions were painting were painted as corrupt, ineffective, and outdated by the Republican party. Republicans in the days of the days of the presidency of Ronald Reagan took control of prosperity issues uh, because of the poor performance of Jimmy Carter and because of a new economic policy of, neo, of neoliberalism which held that regulation was bad for economic growth and that tax cuts would bring sustained prosperity. In 1994, the Republicans swept control of Congress for the first time since 1952. The response of of the Democratic President Bill Clinton was, quote, "We know big governments, we know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program program for every problem." The era of big government is over. Clinton went on to cut New Deal inspired welfare programs and repeal some of the New Deal's restrictions on banks. Clinton largely accepted the neoliberal argument, thereby abandoning New- the New Deal's the New Deal coalition's claim to prosperity issues. So, to hop over the pond to England, like ultimately we got to talk about like how the labor party basically betrayed workers unions in the uk miner strike so uh there is a movie out there called pride which is a pretty good pretty cute movie about um a gay and lesbian group that helped support a um a mine uh mining town in wales in the 1980s and they in turn like help influence the uh labor party to adopt like pro lgbtq policies um but the minor strike was pretty bad um so it started it it went from march 6 1984 to march 3rd 1985 um the goal was to install a new um what was called the ridley plan which was uh, a 1977 report on the nationalized industries in the UK. The report was produced in the aftermath of the Heath government being brought down and down by the 73-74 coal strike. So the Ridley, uh, it was written by a right-wing conservative uh, MP named Nicholas Ridley, who suggested uh, the government should, if possible, choose the field of battle. So this is from the government side. They wanted to choose the field of battle. Industries were grouped by the likelihood of warning signs. Coal Industries was the middle of three groups of industries mentioned. Coal stock should be built, built up at power stations. Plans should be made to import coal from non-union foreign ports. Non-union lorry drivers were, were to be recruited by haulage companies. Dual coal, coal oil firing generators to be installed at extra cost. Cut off money supplied to strikers and make the union union finance them. Train and equip large mobile squads of police ready to employ riot tactics in order to uphold the law, the law against violent picketing. So that was from the government side, from the um uh, from the mine worker side, it, from the miner strike. It was to prevent pit, pit closures. What it resulted in was. Pits being closed, jobs lost, foreign coal was imported, and there was a lot of political unrest. Um so it was led by Arthur Skagel of the National Union Union of Mine Workers against the National Coal Board, a government agency. Opposed to the strike was led by opposition to the strike was led by the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher, who wanted to reduce the power of the trade unions. Um there was a lot of division over the action and many mine workers especially in the midlands worked throughout the dispute Um, it was really big in south wales because like that was the main trade um and those were the pits that were most likely going to be closed um and yeah it was a mess um the NBC was encouraged to gear itself towards reducing subsidies in the early 1980s. And after a strike narrowly averted in was narrowly averted in February 1981, pit closures and pay restraints led to unofficial strikes. The main strike started on March 6, 1984, with a walkout at the Cordenwood Colliery, which led to the NUM's Yorkshire area sanctions of a strike on the grounds of a ballot result, ballot result from the 1980s. From 1981 in the Yorkshire area, which was later challenged in court. Um, So Arthur Skagel made the strike across Brin... On March 12th, but the lack of national ballot beforehand caused controversy. Um, The NUM strategy was to cause a severe energy shortage of the sort that had won victory in the 1972 strike. Uh, the government strategy designed by Margaret Thatcher was threefold: to build up the cold stocks, keep as many mine worker mine, miners at work as possible, and use police to break up attacks by picket by pickets on work on working miners. The critical element was uh, the NUM's failure to hold a national strike ballot. So, therefore, the strike was ruled illegal, and no national ballot of NUM members was held. And And it was the defining moment in British industrial relations with uh, NUM's defeat significantly weakening the trade union movement. It was a major victory for Thatcher and the Conservative Party. Uh, They were able to consolidate their economic program. The number of strikes fell sharply in 1985 as a result of the demonstration effect. And trade union power in general diminished. And there was also three people died during uh, the during the strike Um, and yeah basically the NUM president Arthur Skagel he's kind of blamed for betraying the (coughs) for betraying uh, labor because what ended up happening was um, when the Labor Party got back into power in the UK under Tony Blair um, or, no, I think it was, it was a guy before him, right?
1: I will check that. How is Tony Blair only uh, 69? What the fuck? I feel like he should be, like, 80. <laughs> uh.
0: Okay, so John Major was a conservative. So, Tony Blair comes into power, and his whole thing is, like, new labor. And the thing with new labor is that it's basically, like, it's neoliberalism. Um, It kept, like, the fig leaf of, like, we'll keep the welfare system, um, like, during his first term in office, Blair saw the introduction of a minimum wage, tuition fees for higher education, constitutional reforms such as the devolution of Scotland and Wales, and uh, progress in the Northern Ireland peace process. But, like, he was very much an interventionist um, internationally, and he wound up getting Brendan boiled in the whole Iraq War. Um, but, yeah, like, when it came to labor unions basically, the Labor Party was like, go fuck yourself. So, (laughs) this also leads to us having to talk to an earlier strike back again over in the U.S. with um, the air traffic controller strike of 1981. So, the uh, Union...
1: Which Reagan had some serious fucking sound bites from uh from his public addresses on that whole issue. Holy shit! Does yeah. he sound like a fucking dictator?
0: Yeah. So basically, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization was founded in 1968 with the assistance of attorney and pilot F. Lee Bailey, um, and. Yeah, it was basically, like, a union for air traffic controllers, and air traffic controllers have a pretty tough job and a pretty complicated job. They gotta make sure, like, no planes accidentally run into each other.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, Breaking Bad.
0: Oh, yeah! It's
1: a whole plot. Like, Walter White is responsible for a mid-air collision.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck you, Walter.
1: Man, what a what a guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um Yeah. Um on so like their first So Patco, the professional air traffic controllers organization, they had their first big strike in uh on March twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy. Um to protest many of the FAA's actions that they felt were unfair. Over 2,000 controllers around the country did not report to work as scheduled and informed management that they were ill. Controllers called in sick to circumvent the federal law against strikes by government unions. Management personnel attempted to assume many of the duties of the missing controllers, but major traffic delays around the country occurred. On April 16th, the federal courts intervened and most controllers went back to work by order of the court, but the government was forced to forced to the bargaining table. The strikeout led officials to recognize, the, recognize that the ATC system was operating near at capacity. To alleviate some of this, Congress accelerated the installation of, auto, of automated systems, reopening the Air Traffic Controller Training Academy in Oklahoma City, uh, began hiring air traffic controllers at an increased rate and raised salaries to help attract and retain controllers. In 1980, um, in the 1980 presidential election, PATCO, along with along with the Teamsters and Airline Pilots Association, refused to back President Jimmy Carter and instead endorsed Ronald Fucking Reagan. Paco's refusal to endorse the Democratic Party stemmed in large part from poor labor relations with the FAA, the employer of Paco's members, under the Carter administration and Ronald Reagan's endorsement of the union and its struggles for better conditions during the 1980s election campaign. So, right there, when we're gonna get into the 1981 strike, Ronald fucking Reagan is a fucking bastard.
1: He's a snake. Like he all- is a
0: snake. Like, he's been a snake his entire, he was a snake his entire life. Like, during the Red Scare, during the McCarthy era, he named names uh, about members in Hollywood. Uh, Yeah, so during his campaign Ra- Reagan sent a letter to Robert E. Pauly, the new president of PADCO, in which he declared support for the organization's demands and a disposition to work towards a solution in it he stated quote i will take whatever steps are necessary to provide our air traffic controllers with the most modern equipment available and to ad- adjust staff levels and workdays so they are comm- so they are commensurate with achieving the maximum degree of public safety and i pledge to you that my administration will work work very closely with you to bring about a spirit of cooperation between the president and air traffic controllers, you lying sack of shit. Anyway. In February 1981, Paco and the FAA began new contract negotiations. And citing safety concerns, Paco called for a reduced 32-hour work week, a $10,000 pay increase for all traffic controller air traffic controllers, and a better benefits package for retirement. Negotiations quickly stalled. Then, in June, the FAA offered a new three-year contract with 150 million dollars upfront, uh, of upfront conversions in raises to be paid in 11.4 percent increases over the next three years—a raise more than twice that, twice what had been given to other federal employees. The average federal controller at a GS 13 level, level of common grade controller. Earned thirty six thousand six hundred and thirteen dollars. Again, this is nineteen eighty one money, which was eighteen percent less than private than their private sector counterparts. With the with the raise demanded, the average federal pay would would have exceeded the private control the private sector by about eight percent, along with better benefits and shorter working hours. However, because the offer did not include a shorter work week or, re, or earlier retirement, PACO rejected the offer. So at 7 a.m. on August 3rd, 1981, the union declared a strike, and seeking better worker working conditions, better pay, PACO sought a total raise of $600 million every three years compared to the FAA's offer of $40 million in a 32-hour work week, a four-day week, with, think, and an eight-hour day combined. In addition, PACO wanted to be excluded from the civil service clauses that it had headlong dislike in striking the union violated five usc supplement three 1118p now five us usc seven 7311 which prohibits strike strikes by federal government employees so <clears throat> anthony strelick of the los angeles center Warned that these unrealistic demands in the face of this char- in the face of this change is suicide. So, as I said earlier, Ronald Reagan had said that he supported PATCO, but declared that the strike a peril to national safety and ordered them back to work under the terms of the Taft-Hartley Act. Only thirteen hundred of the nearly thirteen thousand controllers returned to work at ten. 10- 55 a.m., Reagan included the the following in a statement, quote, let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees, a sworn affidavit that they accepted when they accepted their job. I am not participating in a strike, strike against the government of the United States or any agency thereof, and I will not participate while an employee of the government of the United States or an agency thereof. He then demanded That the remaining on strike, that those remaining on strike to return to work within forty-eight hours or officially forfeit their position. Paco decided to disobey the federal court injunction ordering ordering an end to the strike and return to work. A federal judge found the union leaders, leaders including Paco, President Robert Pulley, to be in contempt of court, and the union was ordered to pay a hundred thousand dollar fine and certain named members were ordered to pay a $1,000 fine. For each day, its members are on strike. At the same time, Transportation Secretary Drew Lewis organize, organized for replacements and started started contingency plans By prioritizing and cutting flights severely, about 7,000, and even adopting methods of air traffic control management that PATCO had previously lobbied for, the government was initially able to have 50% of flights available. On August fifth, following Paco Workers' refusal to return to work, the Reagan administration fired the eleven thousand three hundred and fifty and forty-five striking air traffic controllers who had ignored the order and banned them from federal service for life.
1: Yeah, that seems very constitutional. So,
0: that seems awesome of you, Ronald fucking Reagan. I hope you're burning in hell right now.
1: You know, there's something that's been cooking in my mind since we started talking about Mr. Reagan, and there's an alternate timeline out there where (laughs) instead of Ronald Reagan becoming a Republican president, Gregory Peck became a Democratic president.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Better looking, too.
1: Better looking. Better actor. Better ingredients, better pizza.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind hopping over into that timeline.
1: That does. Uh, that seems like a nice one. That c- that could possibly be a very nice one.
0: Yeah. Like, I wonder what would have happened if Ronald Reagan had become a bigger movie star. Would he have jumped into politics?
1: Might have more money in just being a, being mm. an actor then. Yeah. Probably would have just ended up becoming like a venture capitalist.
0: Mm-hmm. Or maybe just be satisfied with being like governor of California.
1: Yeah, could just stayed that.
0: Arnold seemed fine. Okay, Arnold probably wasn't a great governor of California, but like I don't know, he seems chill about it. But yeah, like... <sighs> fuck. So, in the wake of the strike and the mass firings, the FAA was faced with the difficult task of hiring and training enough controllers to replace those who had been fired, and under normal conditions, it lo- it would take three years to train, and train new controllers. Until replacements could be trained, the vacant positions were temporarily... <coughs> Built with a mix of non-participating controllers, supervisors, and staff personnel with non-non-rated personnel, military controllers, and controllers transferred temporarily from from other facilities, Paco was decertified by the Federal Labor Relations Authority on October twenty second, nineteen eighty one. The decision was appealed, but to no avail. And attempts to use courts to reverse the firing proved fruitless. The F. The FAA initially claimed that staffing levels would be restored within two years. However, it took close to ten years before overall staffing levels returned to normal. Some former strike- striking controllers were allowed to reapply after 1986 and were rehired. They and their replacements were now represented by the Air by the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, which was certified on June 19, 1987, and had no connection to PATCO. The civil service ban on the remaining strike participants was lifted by president bill clinton on august 12 1993 nevertheless by 20 by 2006 only 850 packout strikers had been rehired by the faa and like by then probably a lot of those guys were at retirement age or had like God, god knows what they had to do um and a lot of Reagan's firing of the government employees encouraged large private employers like Phelps Dodge, Pommel, and International Paper to hire strike scabs instead of negotiating in labor conflicts. Comparatively, in 1970, there were over 380 major strikes or lockouts in the U.S. By 1980, the number had dropped to under 200. In 1999, it fell to 17. And in 2010, there was only 11 major strikes. In 2003, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, speaking on the legacy of Ronald Reagan, noted, Perhaps the most important and then highly controversial domestic initiative was the firing of the air traffic controllers in August 1981. The president invoked the law, law that striking government employees forfeit their jobs, an action that unsettled those whose those who cynically believe no president would ever uphold that law. President Reagan prevailed, but far more importantly, his action gave weight gave weight to the legal right of private employers, previously not fully exercised, to use their own discretion to both hire and fire and discharge workers. So yeah, we're back to the fucking Victorian era when it comes to employment. Everything that the labor movement had worked for, Starting in the late 1900s. Fucking gone.
1: In the blink of an eye, it was just yeah. wiped out. We have, we literally have not been the same yeah. since.
0: No. Like, I worked in retail. I worked at an ununionized job. I worked for fucking Walmart. You couldn't talk about unionization.
1: I did the exact same stuff as well. I worked retail. I worked at ununionized jobs. And I paid the price for it. I probably have mm-hmm. uh, damaged, like, I know my, oh, some of my friends who have been working for certain companies for quite a while who probably will experience health problems. There's a good chance I'll have lung cancer in the future because I inhaled a bunch of horrible mm-hmm. chemicals and stuff, but my job's not unionized. So... yeah.
0: I know I got a damaged shoulder from my years in the bakery, so...
1: And that's a bakery. (sighs) You shouldn't have to have a damaged shoulder from working from the bakery, but that's just (laughs) the way things go.
0: It's from repetitive movement. Like, I'm doing the same movements over and over again, and it just becomes a stress injury. So, yeah, fucking... 1980s fucking labor was broken, so that you could get your shopping malls, and your unfettered capitalism. This was the era of greed is good. This is the era of Gordon gecko. and, like, if you're wondering, like, how the how the religious right squared that greed, it doesn't fucking matter to them. In fact, it's, they support it. It's well part of this Calvinist doctrine that, like, God is showing his favor towards you by rewarding you with money and power and prestige. And even if God doesn't favor you. It's better to have you working. Because idle hands are the devil's tools. <sighs> so. Yeah. This whole milieu. And we haven't even really touched upon. Like the whole nuclear anxieties of the time. Because like that was real. This is the era of the day after. Regrets. This is the era of Able Archer. Where it's like. Once again, we came this fucking close to nuclear apocalypse, and also the U.S. has a president who is very keen on bringing, on bringing down the Soviet Union, even though the Soviet Union is crumbling at the time.
1: you think he would know that. It's like he really wanted the finishing blow. He wanted to be the one to yeah. take them down.
0: Yeah. Like, it's like, no, Ronnie Reagan and Maggie Thatcher did not end the Cold War. It was the sheer weight of the rotting structure that was Soviet communism that was going to bring down the Soviet Union.
1: And there was nothing that Gorbachev or the weird birthmark on his head could do about (laughs) it.
0: Fuck, people got conspiratorial about that fucking birthmark. They thought it was like the sign of the Antichrist. (laughs)
1: <laughs> My God!
0: <laughs> again, this just fill feels the whole millenarianism of the time too, because again, we're getting close to the end of not just the century, it was the end of the millennium. like there's a reason why fucking Waco popped off like. <sighs> I'm starting to run out of steam on this, but like the '80s were a pretty. Like, we haven't even gotten into AIDS. There's
1: so much. The, to there's this. so.
0: There's so much. It's hard to sum up the 1980s. And like, I was to mo- smoke mostly folk. I I got caught up in stuff like feminism and the labor movement, but like the thing with AIDS is like it was coming after, um the gay liberation movement that was, you know, really starting to... Basically, how I think the timeline goes is that you have the Lavender Scare, which coincides with the Red Scare. Because apparently, if you're gay, you are, um... You're an easy mark for, uh, Soviet spies. (laughs) Or, like, if you're gay, of course you're gonna be a communist. Suck dick for Lenin. Um... Anyway, enough people got fed up with that, that eventually the gay liberation movement happened, where it's like, no, fuck you straights, we're gonna live how we want. Like, we're not harming anyone. Like, we're all adults here. Like, do you want the state, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, telling you how to 69? Or, like, you whether or not you should 69? No, you probably don't appreciate that. So at least in Canada like I got to talk about Pierre Elliott Trudeau. <laughs> Fuck, I haven't even talked about like the 70s. Because <laughs> we had our own things. Yeah. So the father, the late father of our current prime minister, one Pierre Elliott Trudeau who well, was Well, we also ex- say
1: <laughs> we we say the father. Huh? <laughs> quotation
0: marks <laughs> yes there's a rumor once <laughs> well, you see side by side comparisons of like Trudeau and a young Fidel Castro it's hard not mm-hmm. to see the, the resemblance I don't know
1: <laughs> you never know I have an open
0: mind yeah anyway pure Elliot Trudeau um who was an un- inexplicable sex symbol too. Like I had a professor once who um told us about this one time he we went to um Trudeau was on the campaign trail for his first premiership. And he uh or prime ministership and he had stopped in Regina. I think he was having his rally over at the Hotel Sask and my professor distinctly remembers a lady throwing her panties onto the stage. Oh
1: my god.
0: <laughs> now, listeners, just look up a photo of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, because he is, he is a French-Canadian man.
1: He is, if you, close your eyes. Think <laughs> in your mind what a French-Canadian man looks like. Yeah, he looks like that.
0: (laughs) Like, they don't even have the decency of having a picture of him when he was, like, a teenager on the Wikipedia page. Like, for me to judge. I'm just like, how... How was this man considered sexy?
1: Like, at least he had the, uh... I don't know, the... The self-respect to not wear a toupee and just embrace his balding.
0: Yeah. You know what? He was kind of suave, I guess.
1: Yeah, like, he's, he's well put together, you know? You know he wakes yeah. up in the morning and he, he gets dressed and he knows he's looking fresh.
0: Yeah. He,
1: he's, he, he you can sit him down against everyone else and he's like, that guy's looking good. He's looking good.
0: Also, to be fair to Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, the Canadian political system has always favored, like, guys who, on a scale of 1 to 10, hotness, they tend to be a 5 and under. Yeah. We had some uggos.
1: But, I mean, look at this p- portrait that was done yeah. of Mr. <laughs> Trudeau. That's kind of flames. Yeah. <laughs> he, he knows he's got what's carrying his looks, is his clothes and he knows how to wear them
0: yeah he knew how to wear a suit it, it's not like oh i don't know he was before him uh like oh Lester b pearson wasn't that bad of a dresser he he had a look he had his bow ties he also had the decency of going by mike
1: yeah Yeah, like he, like, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you, you put him. Oh my god, you put him right beside fucking Kennedy and. St- uh, uh, ooh, man, that's yeah, that's tough.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: but he yeah. does look so, respectable, respectable yeah. gentleman.
0: Yes, an elder Quebecois, upper class gentleman. Um. Anyway, his big thing, his big contribution to gay rights here in Canada was he decriminalized homosexuality. And he said the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. Which, yeah. To steal a phrase from the DDSM community as long as everything is safe safe, safe, and consensual, like, there's no real problem here. Um. (coughs) But, like, the gay liberation movement was happening and it was moves to decriminalize homosexuality the movement to um you know get gay marriage which some people in the queer community like oppose marriage on a fundamental pro- principle but like if we're going to live in this sort of society like the government does privilege um being married there are certain privileges out there that are really important. like there's family planning stuff, there's banking and tax in- incentives, it's easier to buy a home. Um, you know, you get the right to visit your sick spouse in the hospital, for example. Like, one of the great tragedies of the AIDS crisis was that a lot of people died alone. Um. So anyway, AIDS happened, AIDS... AIDS uh, has been around for a while, but it really came to the forefront in the 1980s. Um, history. So, like, it was first discovered... Um, let's see. So, like, AIDS seems to trace back to like, I, it's we know, it seems to trace back to somewhere in Central Africa, probably, in the early 20th century, maybe even earlier than that. Beatrice Hahn, pa- Paul M. Sharp, and other colleagues proposed the, that, uh, quote, the epidemic emergence of HIV most likely reflects changes in population structures and behavior in African in Africa during the 20th century, and perhaps medical interventions that provided the opportunity for rapid human-to-human spread of viruses, unquote. After the scramble the scramble for Africa, starting in the 1880s, European colonial powers established cities, towns, and other colonial stations. A largely masculine, masculine labor force was hastily recruited to work in fluvial and seaports, uh, railways, and other infrastructures, and in plantations this disruption of traditional tribal values and favored uh, values and favored casual sexual activity with an increasing number of partner increasing number and number of partners in the nascent cities women felt relatively liberated from the tribal tribal rules and many remained unmarried or divorced during long periods this being rare in African traditional societies this was accompanied by an unprecedented increase in Movements. So what's thought to have happened was that HIV jumped from primates to humans possibly sometime between the nineteen thirties and the nineteen fifties in the Congo. And then it started migrating out of places like Leopoldville through um a lot of blood transfusions and also sexual activity. So one of the first cases that might have been HIV related was the death of David Carr who was an apprentice printer, uh usually mistakenly ver- referred to as a sailor, um but he had served in the navy between 1955 and 1957 from Manchester who died on August 31st, 1959 and was for some time mistakenly reported as having died of AIDS, AIDS-defining aids opportunistic infections. Following the failure of his immune system, he succumbed to pneumonia. Doctors baffled by what he had died from preserved 50 of his tissue samples in, for inspection. In 1990, the tissues were found to be HIV positive. However, in 1992, a second test by AIDS researcher David Ho uh, found that the strain of HIV present in his tissues was similar to that found in 1990. 90 rather than an earlier strange, which would have mutated considerably over the course of 30 years. He concluded that the DNA samples provided provided actually came from a patient with AIDS in 1990. Upon retesting David Carr's tissues, he uh, found no signs of the virus. So, also in 1959, there was a Congolese man who seemed to have died from a blood... Um, from blood-related HIV infection, then a Congolese woman in 1960, then another Congolese man in 1966. Then there was Robert Rayford, a 16-year-old African-American boy uh, who died in St. Louis uh, from Kaposi Sacroma. In 1987, researchers at Tulane Medical... uh, Tulane University School of Medicine detected a virus closely related to or identical to HIV-AIDS. He won in his preserved blood tissues. In his preserved blood and tissues, the doctors who worked on this case at the time suspected that he was a sex worker or a victim of sexual abuse. Though the patient did not discuss his sexual history with them in detail. Then, in 1973, there was a bunch of Ugandan, there were 75 Ugandan children, um, who uh, researchers drew blood from, uh, as, to serve as controls for a study of Burkett's lymphoma. In 1985, retroactive testing of the frozen blood serum indicated that antibodies to an to a virus related to HIV was present in 50 or 67 percent of the children. Then there was Arvid Noah, a Norwegian sailor, um, who managed to infect his wife and his seven-year-old daughter with AIDS. The sailor was first present had first presented symptoms in 1969, eight years after he had first spent time in ports along the West African coastline. A gonorrhea infection during his first African voyage showed that he was sexually active at the time. Tissue samples from the sailor and his wife were tested in 1988 and found to to contain HIV-1, Group O. There was a Danish surgeon, uh, Greta Rask, who um, was likely directly exposed to blood from many Congolese patients, one of whom whom infected her. She later became unwell in 1974 and then returned then returned to Denmark in 1977 with her colleagues baffled by her symptoms. She died of pneuma, pneumocystis pneumonia in December 1977. Her tissues, for example, examined and tested by her colleagues and found to be positive in 1987. So then yeah, it eventually got over to Canada and the US, and it was first reported um by a volunteer social worker called Betty Williams a Quaker who worked with homeless with the homeless in New York from the 70s into the early 80s who talked about people at the time whose deaths would be labeled as junkie flu or the dwindles in an interview for Act Up Oral History Project in 2002 she said quote of course the horror stories came mainly coming from women who were injection drug users who had PC, PCP pneumonia a uh, pneumo pneumonia and were told that they were that they had that they just had bronchitis she continued quote i actually believe that aids kind of kind of existed among the people of fur among this group of people first because if you look back There was something called junkie pneumonia. There was something called the dwindles that addicts got, and I think that was another early AIDS population way too helpless to ever do anything for themselves on their own behalf. So, eventually, like, this junkie flu started getting into the gay population. who were becoming the most visible of them because they were also, like, the most vocal and active about how dangerous this new illness was um that was killing them but unfortunately they got hit with the stigma of the of AIDS being you know transmissible through sex and it's like you can get it through a lot of different fashions. It's like it's like hepatitis.
1: It's it's not limited to just, you know, sex. I mean
0: there was a bunch of like how HIV got into Romania, the most famous story was um a bunch of hemophiliac kids um were given untested blood uh that was donated from the US. Turns out a bunch of those um bunch of those blood bags had HIV in them. And that's one of the vectors for how it got into Eastern Europe was through blood transfusions. And you can transmit AIDS through, um, from another child, um, through sharing needles. Wear fucking condoms. Um. But not through this sweat. podcast. Yeah. And this podcast, we support, you know, uh, needle dispensaries and having clean areas for people to shoot up. Like. We'd rather people be alive than having to go to go to desperate measures to do what they need to do to survive. <sighs> yeah. So the again, the fuck the Reagan government, fuck the Thatcher government, they did nothing. They just, you know, said pretty words and did absolutely nothing. And at least the Surgeon General at the time, like he was a pretty, you know conservative christian guy but he took his oath as a doctor very seriously you know do no harm and help people and he was a big fighter for you know aids research and getting medicine and figuring out how to stop this because the thing about disease like as much as you like hate the people who are being infected because you consider them a pariah population like disease does not care Disease only wants a warm body to infect, because that's how viruses and bacteria survive. Anybody can be felt by disease, like I don't know we we're still dealing with a fucking flu pandemic, and like in my darker moments, I sometimes wish it was a bubonic plague, like just to have the visible reminders of what this is, and that nobody is safe, but that's. Lindsay at her, like, when I'm in a depression spiral. And, yeah, disease can fell anyone. You're not safe. Get vaccinated. Mask up. Fuck, I'm still getting over a cold, and I am hoping that it doesn't turn into a flu. Remember last time, Ryan? Yep. <laughs> oh, I was fine. I'm sorry, I'm trying to... <sighs> You fucking bastard. Yeah. You know what? This time, this time, Ryan, I got my bivalent vaccine and my flu vaccine. You can't hurt.
1: (coughs) (laughs) We'll see about that. So,
0: (laughs) yeah. Basically, this is all to say the queer community was fucking decimated by AIDS. Like, there's this one picture from the, I think it was the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir that had like a before and after picture of their members, like before AIDS and after AIDS. They lost half of their members. Like, there's a generation of predominantly gay men who are gone. Um, Again, the British film Pride which is about, you know, the Queer alliance with uh, mine workers during the mine worker strike in the nineteen eighties. There were some real people that they had portrayed, and one of the leaders was a Northern Irish gay man uh, who was a major organizer. And um, six months after the breakup of of the miner strike, he died from AIDS. But there was also another man involved, um, he was actually one of the first men in the UK to be diagnosed with AIDS. Let me look up, try the movie. Uh, 2014 film cast... Yeah, so the guy I just talked about, Mark Ashton, um, died in 1987. He was a British gay rights activist and co-founder of the Lesbian and Gay Support Minors, uh, LGSM support group. He was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain and General Secretary of the Young Communist League. Um, and he was diagnosed with HIV AIDS in January 1987 and died, oh, I was wrong. He died 12 days later of pneumocystis pneumonia. Um, then the other guy I was talking about, Jonathan Blake. Oh, thank God he is still alive. Um, Jonathan Blake, born July 21st, 1949, is a British gay rights activist and former member of the Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners. He was one of the first people diagnosed with HIV in the United Kingdom and is one of the country's oldest surviving people with the illness.
1: Hmm. Like...
0: So there was a later study done on HIV that um, found that it has basically HIV? um, There's like this um, DNA strain that is found mostly in people of European descent that kind of gives you immunity to bubonic plague. And they found that it also might give you some immunity to eight.
1: Yeah,
0: so basically like, if you have one set of this gene, um, you're going to get infected, but you can survive. And if you have two, then you're probably immune. But, like, I don't know if Jonathan Blake has that, but like, He's managed to, yeah, he's seventy three. Um, or maybe it's a situation like um, Stephen Hawking, where like his ALS kind of burned itself out and it Mm -hmm. went into a stasis. I don't know, but yeah, like yeah, AIDS. Um, (sighs) and yeah. That wasn't even the only, like, it's the end of the world as we know it in the 80s. and I think it just kind of fed into the whole consumerist culture of the time. You know, live like, there's no tomorrow. I don't know. I don't know how to end this! This is a bummer episode, and, like, hey. next episode, I need to send you the PDF because I managed to find a PDF version of Michelle remembers, and I think we should talk about that because it's yeah. on, like, this Malou. Yeah. That we're gonna... Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything positive that we can, like, end this on? Um... Uh... I'm at... so sorry, Ryan. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Ryan. you... I, w- I, I didn't want to interrupt you because you, you you know you you were just going, so I didn't want to interrupt. Sorry, but uh, you know what? At least Reagan and Thatcher are dead and burning in hell. Yeah.
0: Because mm-hmm. yeah. I, I don't want to do a part two. Like I think there, there's a no. We're lot we're of good. Yeah, <laughs> the '80s actually suck, people.
1: But movie, but movie, movie, cool movie. That's fine. Let, yeah, let's just let, let's just call it. Let's just call it here. We're done. It's it's been addressed. They can't say we didn't talk hell- about it.
0: Yeah talked about the 80s and how horrible it was um and then next time i'm gonna send you the pdf of michelle remembers okay so that we can talk about that because it's from this awful Malou that michelle remembers comes into it and kind of kicks off classic flavored satanic panic and then we'll talk about the devil okay we'll talk about the devil
1: i hope we didn't talk a whole lot about the devil but we'll get to him He's patient.
0: Yeah. Anyway. God. Is there any way to end this on, like, a positive note?
1: No. I don't think there is. (laughs) The only thing we can do is just get out of here. So, Lindsay, tell the good people where they can find you.
0: Um, well, I can be found... Miracle of Miracles, Twitter is still up. Um, you can find us on... Uh, God, why am I so unprepared? I shall just hop over here. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at... Uh, you the devil in D and podcast. That's at you underscore D because I sucked at naming this uh, Twitter handle, but it probably won't matter soon. Um, you can find me at Lindsay M four seven six. That's Lindsay spelled the nay and uh, my pinned tweet is my link tree. You can get to stuff like my Tumblr and Pinterest. ...Archive of of our own account on Instagram. Ryan, where can people find you?
1: Uh, You can find me on Vagabond Haunted and maybe Elon Musk can do me a favor and fucking get rid of that goddamn dead account that has a haunted Vagabond! GOD! Anyways, you can find me on Vagabond Haunted in the meantime on Twitter, and use my link tree, link, uh, link r, <laughs> link tr dot ee backslash, or, no, that's just right off, fuck, I fucking, <laughs> uh, <laughs> haunt, it, it, you know what, just go to the Twitter, you can see the link trees right at the top, then it'll take you everywhere else.
0: Um, <sighs> uh, you can also email us at ytdadnd at gmail.com or you can send us your comments, critiques, questions and stories, you can also send us a friendship promo, uh, be it an audio clip or proof for us to read our cover art is by Queen Ethelred and music is, well, for the circus, currently by Metallica thanks guys thanks james and lars fuck you Um, lars (laughs) um we are members of the corner podcast network and i should get christina to send us a link to the discord because we now have a discord channel
1: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, we'll get that up later
0: yeah um I'm recording on Treaty 4 territory, the traditionalness of Greece, subtle the Cree, Salt, and Assiniboine in homeland of the Meat.
1: Now I'm recording on the unceded territory of the Clay Lay Tene. And as always, praise God.
0: Hail Satan.